Why is banning idolatry one of the first commandments God gave? Do Christians still sometimes engage in idolatry in modern times? And is it possible to break God's heart? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and your host today as we discuss Ezekiel chapter 6. But first, I want to tell you about this news story that I recently came across. This was about a woman in Brazil, and she had spent a year praying to a statue of Elrond. In case you didn't know, some in the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox traditions, sometimes they'll have a little shrine of statues in their house, and they'll go to this, uh, you know, daily or regularly. Uh, these statues are meant to symbolize saints of the church, um, ancient people who've, who've, people who have long died. And then there was this grandma down in Brazil, and she had been praying to a statue for the past year that she believed was St. Anthony of Padua a saint who embodies the values of having courage through the ups and downs of life. Come to find out, whenever her great-granddaughter came for a visit, it was not actually a statue of St. Anthony of Padua. It was an action figure of Lord Elrond of Rivendell. He's the king of the elves in the Lord of the Rings movies. Now, believe it or not, it was the long hair that gave it away to the granddaughter, not the pointy ears or the GameStop logo on his feet. We can only hope that Gandalf will forgive her for this egregious mistake. So as I read the story, the granddaughter and the grandmother, they had a good laugh over the fact that she had been praying to an action figure rather than a literal statue of St. Anthony. And they, they found a lot of humor in the fact that she'd been praying to this action figure every night before bed for an entire year. She said as soon as she realized her error, she immediately got an actual St. Anthony statue so she could begin praying to that instead. Now, as I read about this whole ordeal, what I found more humorous or silly or sad is that she thinks that praying to a St. Anthony statue has any more of an effect than praying to Elrond. I mean, at least Elrond fought in the Battle of Middle-earth in the Third Age, and Anthony probably didn't kill nearly as many orcs in his lifetime. To me, it's as silly and pointless to pray to one as much as the other. The Bible never tells us to pray to saints or to statues or to anyone other than God. In fact, to pray or bow down to a physical object that is known as idolatry in the Bible. And it's the most common sin discussed in Scripture. Idolatry was a major issue in pagan nations, in ancient Israel, and apparently still among people who claim to follow God today. So we're going to read a chapter all about idolatry in Ezekiel 6. And this will describe a sin that was present in ancient Israel. It's one of the reasons that God let them be taken in the Babylonian captivity. And as we go on, we'll read about how the sin of idolatry creeps into even followers of God today. The danger of idolatry is that it puts your spiritual life askew. You may think you're following the Lord of the Bible, when in fact it's a Lord of your own mind, a Lord of your imagination, or worse yet, a Lord of the Rings. So grab your Bible, grab a seat, and flip to Ezekiel chapter 6. We're going to cover it all today.
believe this lesson will be shorter than usual. Um, for one thing, it's just a very cut and dried chapter. It's simple to understand, not much mystery in unpacking what it's saying. And then um, chapter six and seven of Ezekiel, they're also, if I could say this, they're kind of a lull in the narrative. They're a chance to catch our breath. Uh, chapters one through three, they opened up with Ezekiel's calling and commissioning. And then chapters four and five, they dealt with the big 430-day sign act that Ezekiel did where he was lying on his side. Now, the next big section of Ezekiel is going to be a massive vision that starts in chapter 8 and goes through chapter 11. So we're in between that right now. We're in between with chapter 6 and 7, and they're just a bit low-key compared to what has come before and what is coming later. They are both individual oracles that God speaks to Israel to explain to them why they are being punished. And we've been told that Israel rebelled against God, and God gets a little more specific about what they were doing in chapters 6 and 7. In fact, chapter 6 is just all about one sin. It's all about idolatry. Chapter 6 is addressed to the mountains of Israel, and chapter 7 is addressed to the land of Israel. Now, let me read a few verses, and then I'll talk about why he addresses this to the mountains. Ezekiel 6, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. So God says for this first oracle that Ezekiel is to address the mountains and the hills. Now, why is that? Well, it was because it was up there that the Israelites would build these shrines to false gods that were called the high places. And these were centers of idolatry. And the ancient Jews and a lot of ancient people, they had this pagan belief that if you were up on a hill, that God could hear you better because you were closer to the sky. And so they often built their altars and shrines in these elevated locations, and these were known as the high places. As you read the books of First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, it gives the history of all the kings of Israel, and you'll notice that it often mentions the high places. It'll say, so-and-so was a good king, he demolished the high places, or so-and-so was a bad king, he permitted the high places, or it might even say so-and-so was a good king, even though he never destroyed the high places. So the high places, they were significant enough that God repeatedly comments on them whenever he gives his assessment of whether a king was good or bad. A lot of it had to do with what the king did about the high places. And God does not like idolatry. He does not tolerate this idea of worshiping or praying or burning incense to statues and physical objects. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments, it was Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. And then Exodus 24 and 5, that's the second commandment. He said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I can't emphasize enough that the first two commandments, they are warnings about idolatry. And that's what I'd say the word of the day is this time. Uh, idolatry. That's what this chapter will be all about. Now let's keep reading. Ezekiel 6 verses 4 through 7. Your altars shall become desolate, and your instance altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, 
The city shall be waste, and the high place is ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Really, really dark stuff here. So God says your bodies will be scattered around the idols whenever Babylon invades. Not only will the people be left bloodied and broken, but the high places themselves are going to be busted and broken. And to me, it seems that it's clear what God is saying here. If the Israelites weren't going to take care of their own high places, God was going to use the Babylonians to do it. He would let them sweep through and tear all this stuff down. Israel had their chance to fix the problem. They didn't. So now God will let the Babylonians loose on the high places. And this also reveals the psychology of idols in the worshiper. An idol is something that you look to for comfort and security. And we're going to revisit that idea later when we talk about the idols in our own lives. Your idol is, is what you look to to take care of you. So when the Babylonians invade, those who believe in the idols are going to run to their idols for protection as if the hunk of stone or wood could actually do something to save them. And the people are going to pay the ultimate price for this stupidity. They're going to die clutching the idol that not only couldn't save them from God's judgment, but what brought God's judgment. Ezekiel uses a few different words here to refer to the high places in this chapter. Now, in English, the words are rendered as idols or altars, sometimes as chapels. But in Hebrew, the word that Ezekiel uses, uses the most for idols is golilim. And it's a word that he actually made up. It's a word he made up to refer to idols. And it's also a word that means sheep poop. When Ezekiel refers to the high places, he often uses a word that is synonymous with sheep poop. So he's name calling here. He's trying to be a little gross. And it's meant to reflect God's disposition toward the idols. Now, not only that, Ezekiel is using the strongest word in Hebrew for poop whenever he refers to the idols. Our Bible translator, they would, they would never render these words as literally as Ezekiel is saying them because <laughs> if we used our corresponding word, that's the strongest word for poop whenever we were translating this passage, uh, well, we'd be using a word that, that I wouldn't say, um, especially because my mother-in-law might be listening. But if, if I said the four-letter word that Ezekiel was using in the Hebrew, you would probably turn off this podcast and wouldn't be listening to me anymore as your Bible teacher. So, if I may, I'm going to restate a couple of the verses that we just read, and I'm going to use a word for poop that corresponds to what Ezekiel is saying, but I'm even going to be a little tamer than, well, I'm not going to cuss. I'm going to be tamer than even Ezekiel was, but I am doing this to shock you a little bit, okay? Because what Ezekiel said this would have been shocking to Ezekiel's listeners. So let me read to you basically what Ezekiel said that's a little more similar to how he said it, how his hearers would have heard it in his day. I will cast down your slain before your crap gods, and I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their crap gods, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste, and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your crap gods broken and destroyed. Now, if you had read that in your Bible, <laughs> you'd probably question where you found that Bible. But Ezekiel, this is how the book, this is how the book is. It's a very raw book of the Bible. It like it includes some really frank descriptions of bodily functions throughout this book. We already saw some of that back in chapter four. 
And I mean, if you're if you're offended by hearing crap gods, let me just say, Ezekiel is probably not the book for you. But I do hope you're a little bit shocked to hear that because Ezekiel is trying right here to be shocking. Your Bible translation is not going to tell you it says crap gods. A, a lot of things in our English translations, they're kind of blunted. They're not as sharp because we don't read them in the original language. And, and frankly, I'm not even going to say our own strongest word for poop on here. Even though in, in Ezekiel's vernacular, that very well could have been the type of word that he himself used here. Um, I don't know if they had cussing in Hebrew, but but if they did, he would have been cussing about it. Um, not that cussing's not a big deal, but I, it's actually just to kind of show how, how down Ezekiel and, and how down God is on idolatry, how little God thinks of it. That, that he uses these strong words to describe what these gods actually are, um, what they're really worth. So this particular phrase for idols, which I'm rendering as crap gods, Ezekiel actually was not the first one to use this word. I said he invented it. He wasn't the first one to invent this word. It, it uses the term um, 39 times in the book of Ezekiel, but you also find it all the way back in Leviticus in chapter 26. You find it in Deuteronomy 29, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and the book of Jeremiah. Um, so this is a word that's a little bit frequent throughout the Old Testament, but Ezekiel especially likes to use this word to talk about the idols. All right, well, let's move forward now into verses 8 through 10. And here, God is going to give some warnings to anyone who survives the first wave of destruction. Yet I will leave some of you alive when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Now, uh, to, to explain that above, I feel kind of silly just re- explaining it because I, all I do is really repeat back what I said. It's pretty self-explanatory. God says that there's going to be a remnant of people who survive after Babylon burns through Jerusalem. And we already covered this the last time um, whenever we talked about, well, a few, a few lessons back when we talked about the hairs that were thrown in the fire and some were hidden away. This was saying that not all the Jews will be wiped out. At least one third will survive the initial attack and they'll be taken captive or scattered among the nations. So God is speaking to those who survive and he is saying to them, learn from this, learn from this, learn from this. I am telling you now so that later you can learn a lesson from it. And um, as, as we know from history, Israel does. Once they got back into their land, many years later, they have almost no problems with worshiping idols after that. Um, and we don't see Israel worshiping idols anymore after the captivity. This is part of where the, the Pharisees came from, that by, by the time of the New Testament, the Jews had become very interested in actually following God's law because they don't want to be wiped out like that ever again. So they began zealously following God's commandments, sometimes even too zealously, if that makes sense. They went overboard. They went to the extremes, the extremes of the Pharisees that you read about later on. But it all started in a a good place, good intentions. They wanted to follow God's laws better. They learned their lesson from the Babylonian captivity. So one aspect of these verses we read, actually the most stunning verse of that whole, the whole chapter to me today, it was, it was not the one from before about crap gods. It was actually verse 9. 
And that's where God says, I have been broken over their whoring heart. God says that Israel's idolatry broke him. God's not just mad about the idolatry. He's sad about it. He's heartbroken about it. He calls it whoring. It's a word that, you know, it means to cheat on your spouse. God feels like a husband whose wife cheated on him. Perhaps one of the most surprising things in the Bible is that we human beings have the capacity to break God's heart. God, you know, God is the eternal and perfect being, the highest being in all creation. He has intellect and power and wisdom beyond what I could comprehend, even if I had a billion years to try. God is higher above me than I am above a gnat. Like, I literally have more in common with a worm than I do with God. That's how far above me that God is. And yet, the Bible says that I have the ability to break God's heart. Now, that's beyond shocking to me. I mean, you can't break someone's heart if they don't deeply love you, if they don't deeply care about you. Um, To love someone is to take a risk because you make yourself vulnerable for them. You risk getting your heart broken. And we break God's heart. And yet God keeps loving us again and again and again because that's just who he is. He is love. And Israel is compared to whoring here because they were choosing these stupid, meaningless things above God. It breaks God's heart. It's a spiritual adultery. Uh, Will Smith has taken a lot of flack lately, and much of it's deserved. But um, perhaps you're familiar with, uh, from a few years ago, there was the Will Smith picture that's, that's it's kind of floated around for a few years. It's a meme. It's used in memes. It's where he's crying in a picture. Um, the crying Will Smith photo. It, the origin of that photo is actually from an interview that Will Smith was doing, and he spoke of how his wife had cheated on him. Um, Like, I guess they had agreed to some kind of open marriage arrangement, um, which was stupid. And and he probably cheated on her, too. But anyway, she was so open about her affair with some other guy that uh, there was some interview going on about it. And Will Smith teared up in the interview. And then that became a meme. And lots of people mocked him over it. And um, I think he's really screwed up his marriage. So, uh, you know, the mockery is kind of fair. But at the heart of this story is a heartbroken man because adultery leads to heartbreak. And and this is God's emotion too, whenever we put stupid, lesser things above him, whenever we commit the sin of adul- idolatry. Uh, adultery and idolatry, they, they almost even sound the same, don't they? Um, however, like a husband who still deeply loves his wife, God will always forgive us and always take us back whenever we repent. Um and, and that's just one of the amazing things about God. As I said before, he's love. He'll forgive if we truly repent and realize we were stupid to chase after all this other stuff. Now, one more note on verse 10. God also says there at the end, uh, they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. And you might be a little weirded out by God's vernacular there. He says to do evil to them. Like, what does it mean that God would do evil? Well, to understand what that means, you just have to understand what the Bible actually means by the word evil a lot of the time. It's not simply the opposite of good. It can also be used as a synonym of harm. If you harm someone, the Bible might phrase it sometimes as doing evil unto them. Now, if it's someone who deserves it, it's not actually a bad thing then to harm them. (laughs) So God's not doing evil here, meaning that he's doing something that's not good. Disciplining Israel is good. He's harming them 
so that the remnant will understand that he is the Lord and never forget it. All right, well, let's read the last section of verses for today. Ezekiel 6, verses 11 through 14. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stomp your foot and say, alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord, when their slain lie among their idols around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them, and make the land desolate and waste, in all their dwelling places, from the wilderness to Riblah, then they will know that I am the Lord. Again, this is pretty self-explanatory. It kind of summarizes everything that the chapter has been about so far. God is going to destroy these idols, and if the Israelites won't do it themselves, then he'll bring in a Babylonian cleanup crew to do it. And once again, we see the repetition of famine and pestilence and sword, and all of this is not contingent upon Israel's repentance. God is doing this. He's not offering another chance anymore. Um, they have nothing to expect but judgment. Everywhere that they've built a high place, it is subject to God's judgment. And yes, like I said before, they could repent and God could take them back. But it's actually not going to change the fact that this time, judgment is falling on Israel for all the sins that they've done. Even if they did repent, it's not going to change the fact that they're still going to experience a lot of hardship in the days to come. And um, and here he's talking about specifically how these, these high places that they've built are going to be wiped out. Now, one unique note on this is that Ezekiel is told to clap his hands and stomp his feet as he's communicating it. He's supposed to get the people's attention. His body language is supposed to match the tenor of his message. And one last thing I'll mention is the repetition of this phrase. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. It's a very common phrase in Ezekiel. And part of the purpose that's got, that God is doing all these things so that all will know that he is the Lord. Um, as we said in a previous lesson, you can be a good example or a bad example, but you will be an example. God will either use you as an example of what to do or as an example of what not to do. But either way, God will use you as an example if you follow him. He won't ignore your sins. He loves you too much to ignore it. And he protects his own name too much to let it pass by unanswered. God doesn't want you to make him look bad. So if you take his name, you'd better remember that it carries a responsibility. And it feels as though God's main theme in the whole book of Ezekiel is that everything he does here, it's so that mankind will know who God is. He's proving himself and that the things he says are true. When Israel is punished for its sins, this will demonstrate that God is who he says he is and that he does what he says he will do. All right, well, that covers the chapters. Um, let's do a mailbag, and then I want to share a couple of applications from today's lesson. Well, we'll close down in a few minutes with a recap and some personal application of this chapter. Um, if you have a question on this chapter, leave a comment or shoot us an email to crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think we should tackle in the future. And also today we do have some mailbag feedback, uh, a couple of them actually. 
and these were in response to episodes 21 and 22. Both of those were on critical race theory versus the Bible. And we talked about whether this current racial narrative that's becoming more popular lately, whether it is compatible with a biblical worldview. And many people who are both for uh, and against CRT, which is critical race theory, a lot of people for and against it don't really understand what it means. Um, they aren't even, a lot of people, even people who oppose it, can't really explain exactly what it is. And so we spent some time defining it, and then I explained why I think it actually causes us to think about race differently than how the Bible would have us view race. So we got some responses to that. Um, Michael, he says, CRT obviates the need for any thought, word, or act of racism as proof of their presumed verdict. All they need is their preferred race measuring less favorably than another. Regardless of the cause, they declare their favored race to be victims of the other. Then they would use real government enforced discrimination in response to their presumed discrimination, altering laws, policies, and practices to favor their preferred race, all for the stated purpose of forcibly making the measurements between races identical. The operative question is whether you support using government to impl implement racial discrimination. All the rest is academic. My answer is no. And Michael, I would say I agree with everything you said. Um, CRT wants to use current discrimination to correct past discrimination. Uh, to put it in terms of Romans 3, it wants to do evil that good may come, uh, which of course the Bible says not to do in Romans 3. So thankfully, thankfully our laws do protect racial discrimination. Here, you know, here in America, I'm assuming you're in America too. Um, our laws protect us from that, but let's just hope they stay that way. Uh, I was thinking of the current uh, presidential administration that last year they implemented a government grant to farmers. It was to help farmers who were impacted by the pandemic, but they only gave the money to non-white farmers. And that is the kind of discrimination that comes from a CRT mindset where they actually believe it's not racist to racially discriminate against white people um, on the basis of race. I mean, thankfully, the Supreme Court struck that down because it goes against the civil rights of white people. And, uh, you know, I could go off on that more. I don't want to get political necessarily. I'm just mentioning a real life event where we saw CRT play out. Um, and again, thankfully, we have laws right now, and hopefully they stay that way, that protect us from the dangers of people in government trying to use CRT to introduce racial discrimination into our laws, into our legal system. That would be really bad. So um, that, that's kind of political, though, and I'm in the episode, I really wanted to focus more on the spiritual components of that theory. Uh, but I will say, if you want to hear me rant about politics, I do have another podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And you can go there if you want to hear my political thoughts. Uh, here's another mailbag reply. And we got this one from someone named Wade. And let me read it. Hey, Wade was a little more, I think Wade was a little more in favor of CRT. So let me read this. Did you know that World War II black veterans and descendants are still not allowed GI Bill benefits? There is a bill in the House to change this. Authentic CRT seeks to uncover and remedy these inequities caused by systemic racism. So uh, what, Ray, what Wade is referring to, I, I believe, is that um, back after World War II, there were benefits to military service, such as paying for college. Uh, but whenever many black veterans tried to apply for colleges and use those benefits, they were turned down. And things like that happened to a lot of black servicemen after World War II. And it's terrible, terrible stuff. 
And, and this is a this is an example of how CRT, uh, as I said before in those episodes, how it asks good questions, but it gives bad answers. Now, the questions that CRT would ask are whether this was because of racism many years ago and whether it results in all the inequities that we see today. And absolutely, yes, it was racism many years ago. Like, that was absolutely racist and terrible what happened back then. But is racism the only contributing factor to today's inequities? Well, to that, I would say no, definitely not, because World War II was 80 years ago. And you are more impacted by the decisions that you make today than a terrible thing that happened to your great-grandfather 75 or 80 years ago. Uh, what happened to black citizens up, up until the Civil Rights Acts of the 60s, what happened to them in this country, it was deplorable stuff. It was, it was indefensible. It was evil. But nothing can be done to change the past. And we need to teach people today to take responsibility for their decisions. Um, your decisions of today are going to have more impact on your personal success than anything that was done 80 years ago. And that's what we need to teach people. Not to blame the past of decades ago, not to ask that the government shower people with money because of something that happened to their ancestors. Uh, you know, and let me give a modern example. If a man gets a girl pregnant and then he leaves her, or, if, or say he sticks around for a few years, but then he abandons his family, you know, that has a much more devastating effect on a family than whatever happened to their grandparents nearly a century ago. And that's true whether someone is white or black or any color in between. And the fatherless rate in the black community, it is more than 50%. Now, it's rising for all races, and that's terrible for all races. But if we look at the breakdown by race, statistically, it's 20% among whites in America. Talking about fatherlessness. It's 31% for Hispanics. And it's 57% for African Americans. That's according to NPR. Now, you can't just blame that on past discrimination. That's present-day decisions, and that has a much greater impact on the inequalities among the races. That has a much bigger impact today than something that happened 75 or 80 years ago in the past. Now, as far as this current bill, like that's going before the House, I guess, and whether it should be signed into law, again, that's more of a political thing, and I'm, I want to be more focused on the spiritual issues. I think that, so what I'm saying is good Christians can disagree on something like that, Um so I'm not saying if, you know, if someone thinks that's a good idea, that particular bill, you know, I'm not judging you or anything for that. But I, I want to point out one thing about this. Uh, so I Googled this issue and I saw that the Reagan administration, that they already did address this with the law back in the 80s. And they signed a law that directed that benefits, you know, must be shared equally. And then there's also the Veterans Educational Assistance Act in 2008. And that also addressed these problems. And of course, by then, all those things were too late. Like the 80s, that was 40 years after World War II. So it was too late to do anything. But also, that's kind of my point. You can never go back and fix something that was done in the past. It's always going to be too late. And, and I'm pointing out that we could recognize racial problems before CRT came along. See, CRT started being taught in the late 80s and the early 90s. But we had already addressed these issues before CRT was even around. So I say this because... Wade's message, it said, authentic CRT seeks to uncover and remedy these inequities. And I'm just pointing out this problem was already identified before CRT even came around. And, and this points out another one of my issues with CRT 
It's that nothing you do is ever enough. Like we can pass this GI bill that's being discussed in the House right now. But I tell you what, without a doubt, 10 years from now, there's going to be people who are clamoring for another one because pouring money on people today, that's not going to fix racial disparities. Uh, if it's if personal behavior doesn't change too, like I was saying about the rate of fatherlessness. Um, like I said in episode 22, CRT, it's a very graceless mindset. Nothing you do to achieve, achieve racial equality is ever going to be enough. There's always going to be something else they want to do later. So anyway, but thanks for the feedback, guys. And, you know, I'm happy to get more. You can respond further if you want. Um, happy to dialogue about it. Um, if you have a comment on something else that we talked about today or any of our previous episodes, like I said, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I also appreciate if you subscribe and share the podcast and let other people know about the show. Um, and if, if someone you know has a Bible question and it's over something I've covered, you know, send one of my episodes their way. Because uh, that's what I'm doing here. I'm trying to answer a lot of questions regarding the Bible on this show. So next time on the podcast, we are going to be in the book of Ezekiel once again. We're going to try to cover chapter 7. I don't know if I can get through all of it. I'm a little bit behind on my Ezekiel lessons. So I'm going to try to come back and, and get back into this book again the next time around. Uh, it might be a couple weeks because I'm going to be going out of town for the next week. So I, I'll, that'll probably set me back a little. So we should be back in a few weeks. And then after that, I also want to start a mini-series on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, that's how people refer sometimes to the horse riders in Revelation 6. So look for the next episode after that to be about the first horseman of the apocalypse in Revelation 6. So anyway, let's let's do a little application here from Ezekiel 6. And I'm not, I won't do a recap because the, the, the last verses we read in chapter 6 they kind of already provided a pretty good summary of what the chapter was all about. It's a short chapter as far as Ezekiel goes. It's only it's only 14 verses, so it's a pretty short chapter. I won't do a full recap, but let's talk about why idolatry is bad. And, and then let's talk about some places we might see idolatry even in modern times. So why is idolatry so bad? Well, idolatry of a false god is bad because it involves worship of something that is fake, that's not even a real god. Um... Not only that, 1 Corinthians 10.20 says the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And Paul said, I do not want you to be participants with demons. And so demonic powers, Paul said, are tied in with this notion of false gods. Like there may be some Asherah poles that are talked about as being at the high places. Now the god Asherah might not be an actual deity, However, there could be a demonic power known as Asherah who is actually receiving the worship. So there's one reason right there that idols are bad. A lot of them are tied in with, with demons, according to the New Testament. And not only does God forbid the worship of false gods with idols, God also commands us not to even make an idol to him to worship. We are not to worship the God of the Bible using idols. Now, why is that? Well, there could be multiple reasons, but here's what I think. I think whenever you make an idol to God, you have to conceive, of course, of some kind of physical picture or image or statue that conveys all of all of who God is, but in just one thing. And I think that's simply not possible. It like it limits God to just one thing, one characteristic, one attribute, whenever the real God is so much bigger than all that. So for example, let's say you wanted to worship God and you make a giant heart, okay? And you want this heart statue or picture or whatever. You want this heart to represent God. 
because God, uh, because a heart represents love and God is love. So you make a heart statue and you say that you're worshiping the God of the Bible with it. Well, you know, it's a nice thought that God is love and the Bible, the Bible says that God is love, but God is a lot of other things too. For example, God is just, God is good. God is all powerful. God is eternal. So God is a lot of things. But if you just focus on the, the heart of love and warm, mushy feelings and, and you make that into God, well, then you're going to see God as primarily one thing over other things. And it will present a skewed mental perception of God. And that's why we're just supposed to look at the Bible and get our perception of God from that, not from a physical image. If you were to ask someone to draw a picture of God, they would probably draw an old man with a beard sitting on a throne. And we could say that that conveys the majesty and the wisdom of God, but it also leaves out a lot of other characteristics of God. Um, Anytime you try to visualize God as just one thing, it just takes away from everything else that he is. And so idolatry is bad because it slaps one thing on God when God is many things. And so the second commandment, is to not make any image of God. In my NIV study Bible, it actually seems to even break this rule, <laughs> which, which I find a little troubling, but I have an NIV study Bible. And on like the second page, it has the classic picture of God uh, creating Adam. It's by Michelangelo. It's a very famous picture. And of course, God in the picture, he's an old man with a beard. And, and one day I just flipped open my Bible and I saw that picture there. And I just kind of had this thought, wait a second. Like, aren't we supposed to not do that? <laughs> Does, doesn't this book itself tell us not to attempt to create an image of God? And yet they just print it right there in the introduction to Genesis. And, you know, I'm not trying to judge Michelangelo. I'm sh- I don't know if he was even a Christian or whatever. I don't know anything about Michelangelo. I know he painted a lot of biblical pictures. Um, so assuming he was a Christian, he probably had good intentions. But it just kind of made me realize how easy it is that we can slip into idolatry without even really meaning to. Uh, You know, I can't see any justification for painting a picture of God. And I even, you know, I kind of considered tearing that page out of my Bible, but then I thought, you know, I'm going to leave it because this is a good reminder of how easy it is to slip into idolatry without even realizing it. Now, a lot of people question whether pictures of Jesus are also wrong. And I would say I look at that a little bit different. Um, And here's why, because Jesus was God in human form, which means that he was fully divine, but that he did have an actual physical form back whenever he walked this earth. He, I mean, he had a literal human body. So it's not exactly the same scenario as when someone takes, you know, a spiritual being like God and tries to make up their own physical rep- representation of him. Jesus actually did have a physical form. So, I, you know, I'm not going to just freak out about seeing a painting of Jesus somewhere. I do think if we're going to depict Jesus in like a story or a picture, we need to do it in an honest way. Okay. Like he wasn't a white guy. Okay. He surely didn't have long hair according to the new Testament. Um, he, he wasn't the pale skin, blue eyed Jesus that you see in a lot of European art. We're now we're given very little description of Jesus physically in the Bible. Other than the, the fact that he has a beard. Other than that, we don't really know a whole lot. Um, we know that he was Jewish or Middle Eastern looking. So I think if you create a depiction of Jesus, that's at least in the ballpark of what his physical body actually looked like, you're probably doing okay. I'm pretty sure that when people make, you know, the white European Jesus, that's more of 
trying to make God in our image. Um, but that's not what he probably actually looked like. So anyway, I'm not going to call that idolatry. Um, and I know a lot of times whenever you talk about idolatry in churches today, we talk about how things like money or sex or power, how they can become idols. And that's legitimate to talk about. I'm not going to go there today because um, I think we're actually going to have a chance to talk about that more whenever we get to Ezekiel 14. So I want to talk about that later on. But I do want to talk about idolatry in the more literal form today because uh, I, I see some ways it takes place even affecting churches. It can just slip in so easily, like I said. So let me just take a minute and refer back to that story that I discussed at the beginning of the lesson where the woman was praying to an action figure from Lord of the Rings. You know, I have some problems with this practice in Catholicism and Orthodox churches. And I'm not saying this to hate on people who are in that. Um, you know, if I'm talking about Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, it's very easy for me to conclude that the people in those religions, that they're not even Christians, that they're not saved. It's very clear whenever you look at their beliefs that they are pretty far from a lot of significant doctrinal teachings of the Bible. But whenever we look at Catholics or Orthodox Christians, that's much more in a gray area to me um, because we all use the same Bible. We all have a lot of the same beliefs, especially on major doctrines like the authority of Scripture, the deity of Jesus, the doctrine of the Trinity. So, you know, as a Protestant, when I look at what Catholics believe or Orthodox believe, we have so much in agreement on some of these important issues that I kind of wish I could just accept our differences as just, you know, say that they're not really that important. Just kind of look at them as other denominations of Christianity. Like, I really wish I could do that. But this is, this is where I have a major problem, though, with what I see as idolatry over there. Like this practice of praying to the saints. You often hear Catholics speak about praying to Mary or various saints who have died. Now, to be considered a saint by the Catholic Church, I know they have some standards for sainthood. Like, they have some really high standards that you have to meet to be considered an actual saint. But when I read the Bible, it says to me that all Christians are saints. There's not, like, a higher level of sainthood that only certain people attain. And, and prayer in the Bible, it's something that you offer to God. We aren't told to pray to other beings. And I don't say this to insult anyone, but whenever you pray to Mary, you know, I don't think she's even listening. I don't know what Mary's doing up in heaven, <laughs> but the Bible doesn't tell me that she's taking prayer requests. And I get really uncomfortable whenever I hear people talk to Mary as if she's a divine being. Uh, you know, here's a prayer that I saw. I saw this shared on Facebook a few days ago. It's called the Prayer of Morning Consecration to Mary. And here's what it says. My queen, my mother, I offer myself entirely to thee. And to show my devotion to thee, I offer thee this day my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my heart, my whole being without reserve. Wherefore, good mother, as I am thine own, keep me, guard me as thy property and possession. Amen. You know, as a Protestant, whenever I read that, that sounds to me no different than whenever I hear a Muslim praying to Allah or a Hindu praying to one of his gods. These concepts are not things taken from the Bible, like calling Mary my queen. Um, there are a few places that a queen of heaven is mentioned in the scripture and it's talking about idolatry. And this prayer said that I offer myself entirely to Mary. You know, if I prayed it, that's saying I'm offering myself entirely to Mary. And I'm just wondering, does that leave anything for God? 
<laughs> like, am I Mary's property? As this prayer says, you know, I thought I was God's property. Like, let me read the second commandment again. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, I believe Mary is up in heaven right now. Sure. So aren't we told right here explicitly not to make a likeness of someone up in heaven? And yet, if you walk into a Catholic church, you'll see statues of Mary. You'll see statues of Mary in people's homes. People bow down to them as they enter the churches and they pray to them at their homes. And I know Catholics say that they don't worship the statues, but it says right here in the commandment, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So if you devote yourself to Mary as her possession and say you'll do whatever she says, you know, as the prayer we just read claimed, well, God has already said he's a jealous God. He's not sharing us with anyone. So am I saying right here that a Catholic or Orthodox Christian can't really be saved because they engage in idolatry? I'm just going to say that's more of a gray area to me. Like, I want to say they can be saved because of all the areas of agreement that we have. Like, there's a lot of great things I can say about Catholics. But there are some major issues that I have when it comes to this Mary stuff or, or the praying to the other saints. So here's what I'd say to a Catholic or an, or an Orthodox Christian. I'm not trying to make any claims about your salvation, but I would really, really like you to get out of the gray area. Like, I'd really like to convince you to re-examine some of these practices that look a lot like idolatry. I once had a conversation with a Catholic years ago about this stuff. I was talking about their practice of praying to saints. And, and he said, he told me, you know, this is kind of where we landed. He said, well, the Bible never says anywhere that you can't pray to the saints. And I was like, well, I guess, you know, as far as I know, that's, that's true. I can't find a verse that says you can't pray to saints. But I said to him, could we agree that there's nowhere in the Bible that it tells us to pray to saints. Or, and there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us to pray to anyone but God. And this Catholic agreed with me on that. So I would say it's a gray area at best, and I would just invite you to have a faith that has no gray areas. Like, I don't care what label you want to put on it. I'm not trying to get you to label yourself as any certain denomination. I would just encourage you not to engage in practices that aren't commanded in the Bible, okay? Things that I'd even go, say that, things that I'd even say go against the Bible and into idolatry. Now, you might be thinking, when I consecrate myself to Mary, that's also consecrating myself to God because Mary belongs to God. But if you think that, I would just ask, why not just consecrate yourself to God? Like, wouldn't that be safer? That would be like less, less of a gray area then, right? <laughs> just straight to God. Because the Bible says, there is only one mediator between God and man. It's Christ Jesus, according to 1 Timothy 2.5. We don't need a saint to be a go-between between us and God. So I would just say, why not stick to what the Bible says and just do what the Bible tells us to do and avoid all those gray areas? That's my encouragement to everyone listening. Shed any practices that aren't right there in the Bible when it comes to our spiritual life. Be skeptical or investigative when it comes to things that come from traditions of men. If you can't find a biblical basis for it, it's open to examination. It's fair game. It doesn't mean you always have to throw it out, 
but at least always re-examine these things because a lot of times traditions, they've been around for centuries and we think that they're fine because they're traditions that have, they've been around for so many years. They've been around since before we were born. So we say, what right do I have to change them? But it could be something that God never wanted and he's just hoping someone will come along and tear it all away. Like those high places in the Old Testament. You know, even the good kings sometimes allowed the high places to remain. And they probably thought, these high places have been around since before I was born. This is tradition. Maybe it's not explicitly allowed in the Bible, but they're just just too much of a part of the life of the people. I can't take them away now. And all that time, it was breaking God's heart and building his wrath. The high places are idolatrous. They're demonic strongholds. And do the high places remain a problem for us today? Do we have high places in our lives, in our culture, in our hearts? Well, let's check a familiar verse in the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 12, it says, and I'm going to read this in the King James because it's a little more familiar there. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The New Testament says that we still need to watch out for those high places. We still wrestle with the devil, with demonic powers, with idols, with the high places. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that Gandalf might be an old man with a beard, but we don't pray to Gandalf. We pray to God. Thank you.